As we lead up to that, uh, that time uh, in the Word, I, I was reading this. I, I, you'll see in a minute why I'm going to say this, but you probably knew this, but in, in 2019, about 1.92 billion bushels of wheat were produced in the U.S. Total wheat production value amounted to about 9.1 billion U.S. dollars in that year. The U.S. is ranked first in crop export volume. Almost 50% of its total wheat production is exported. To bring it a little closer to, uh, to uh, what you might be able to connect with, Missouri has a great agricultural tradition. Show Me State is home to nearly 95,000 farms covering two-thirds of the state's total land acreage and supporting many of the state's top agricultural commodities, including soybean and corn and cattle and hogs and turkey. And it ranks first in the U.S. in the production of soybean and third in the production of corn. In order for all of that to come about, the basics have to be in place, and one of those basics is water. Do you know that according to one engineering study, a rain of four inches over an area of 10,000 square miles would require the burning of 600 million, 640 million tons of coal to evaporate enough water for such a rain. To cool those vapors produced and collect them in a cloud would require another 800 million horsepower of refrigeration working night and day for 100 days. The average farmer in the Midwest, free of charge, gets 407,510 gallons of water per acre per year. The state of Missouri has 70,000 square, square miles and 38 inches of average rainfall. That amount of water is equal to a lake 22 feet deep, 250 miles long, and 60 miles wide. And God moves that water around in just one state alone. Reminds me of Psalm 62:11. Once God has spoken, and twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. And apparently resources as well. And it makes an appropriate transition, I think, to our passages for today found in 2 Corinthians 9. Look, if you would, I'm going to pick up in verse 8. Please read with me. Open your Bible, your tablet, your phone, so that you can read along and see the words. And we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. Verse 8 is going to pick up this way. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, as it is written. He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God, verse 13, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them all, to them and to all, verse 14. While they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you, verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We are rapidly approaching the end of these two chapters in 2 Corinthians, which deal with the use of money. And we've gone verse by verse through them. And last week, we finished up our time together with these two last principles, which are really handholds that we've identified in the passage to help us work our way through. And where Paul is pointing out the blessings of following the Lord's direction in regard to finances. And we saw principle number eight on that pathway of blessing is the individual who follows through with a predetermined single-minded giving is the recipient of an open-handedness from God to them. And we just finished seeing that God has a special love for those who manage what he has given them as he's directed. And we saw that he loves a cheerful giver and when it's given in a predetermined manner without grudging or complaining, He's pleased with that, and there's a special love from him to them. And then we read in verse 8, and God, that's the one with the special love for those who give, is able to make and mark these, all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. 
And so the Holy Spirit carries Paul along here to really pile up the superlatives in the verse. We saw that last time. Our normal experience is when we give something away, we have less. But what Scripture is trying to affirm to us as is carrying Paul along is that when you manage what you have in a biblical way, the Holy Spirit wants to be sure that we know that we won't have the same experience. And then verse 8 says this. It says, and God is able... And we know that, don't we? Certainly from our opening illustration, everything belongs to him, doesn't it? And he moves it around as he sees fit, so he's certainly able. All power belongs to him. So the question is, really it's two questions. Do you believe that God is able to do what he says he can do? And secondly, that he will do it. Those are the two questions that really play as we come into play as we think about aligning our the way we manage what we have in a way that God will be pleased with because it takes faith to believe in the fact that God is able to do it and that he will do it or it is inclined to do it so what's God able to do well he's able to make all grace abound to you and we saw last time that just means that uh, all great grace is just undeserved gifts from God and all grace is all the grace there could be inside the infinite nature of God that's what's available and he gives it abundantly and he abounds in his giving which means to be over and above. So over and above what? Well, at the minimum, it means any experience that we've had up to that point or above and over any expectation we may have. Paul's just carried along to affirm to the church that God does not shortchange those who give. Paul piles up the words here so that we can understand uh, the, the tremendous resources available and God's ability and marked us his inclination to reach into the lives of faithful people who give in this way. So God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And we saw that this was speaking of things of this world. That's the only thing he could be talking about in this context. That's the emphasis here in Paul's letter. It can only be this because he's dealing with an offering that he and the others are coming to take up. So it has to be financial. And when you see, uh, use an agricultural axiom, which we're doing here, the harvest has the same characteristic as the seed. So always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance. The obvious application is when we sow material things, we're replenished by God, and God has unlimited resources from which to pay back. To the point where there is, he says, sufficiency. You remember this last time. This is that contented assurance that everything is taken care of. And we saw that he does all of that, so you may have an abundance for every good deed. So in other words, God gives back with such an overflowing abundant generosity that you can use it to do more good deeds. That's the point. And when God finds a generous giver, he sets this special kind of love on them, which we saw in verse 7, and he creates this environment of self-sufficiency at the home, in the home, and not, of course, based on the prideful thoughts of I did this, uh, not you're looking around and, you know, you have what you have or whatever. You paid off your house and you're like, oh, I'm really good at this and, and uh, I'm good at, with finances or I, I'm, I'm farther along than other couples or whatever. It's not that. It's reliance on his providence and his generosity, which he provides. And then he continually resupplies what's been expensed by the giving. And he does that so that more good deeds can be done. And so the generous heart's allowed to continue to express that generosity, uh, one good deed after another. And then we saw verse 9. As it's written, he scattered abroad. He gave to the poor his righteousness endures forever. And here we see, as we looked at the extended teaching, Paul's, it's not a new idea. Paul just extracts this principle from an extended teaching in Psalm 112, which we won't look at again. But he's echoing more of what's here. And what's here, the bottom line is this. We're talking about the person who obeys God's commands. That's the he. And in scattering abroad and giving to the poor, He's obeying God's commands, which is a righteous act, faithful righteous act, and we see that in, in uh, Pathway to Blessing. This type of righteous obedience follows you into eternity, just like other acts of obedience follow you in. And where the Lord rewards you with a crown or whatever it is, uh, you are able to forever glorify him because of all that he's done through you. Now, as we think of all of that, and we think what we've looked at so far, um, obviously, Obviously, in, in verses 6 through 15, we have as a focus a believer who has not set as a priority in his life the accumulation of possessions, obviously. Because 
the accumulation of possessions would put you in another category. See, if, if the whole passage here was talking about God wants you to accumulate things, then that would take the passage out of its context here in, in faithful, uh, um, generous, sacrificial giving, which the Lord blesses, and put it in another category of prosperity theology, which is no theology at all, but simply saying that God wants you to be rich and wealthy and have everything you want. That is not the context of this passage. The context of the passage is it's geared towards a pure in heart, those who desire to walk in obedience to God. And so it is geared then towards the person who has a priority in life, which is not the accumulation of possessions. Instead, they have as a priority the kingdom of heaven and the meeting of needs and the advancement of ministry. Those are the things that are important to those this passage is directed to. Now, look at verse 10, and we can connect this passage as well to our opening illustration. Now, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And again, uh, Paul is referring to the agrarian axiom where that doesn't have to be defended. Everybody knows this is how it works. But here he makes it clear why it works. And it's the same reason why farmers in the Midwest can feed half the world. It's, here Paul starts with this statement. Now he who supplies seed to the sower. Now who is that from the literal perspective? Well, we know that from the third day of creation, do we not? We know who supplies seed to the sower. He's the one that set everything up to begin with. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 9, God said, uh, let, let the water uh, below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. So you should mark this in your margin. This is, this is what he's referring to, he who supplies seed to the sower, or if you're in a tablet or, or a phone, it allows you to put some notes in. This, this will help you remember and verse 10, it says, God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called seas, and God saw it was good. And then verse 11, and then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning a third day. So ultimately, everything comes from the Lord. This is not a surprise to us, but this takes us back to where all this agrarian thing started, does it not? It tells us where everything was planted and where it was planted and why it was planted, and God owns it all, and he sustains it all, and so we get that, I know. Uh, but in a symbolic sense, who gives the seed then from verse 6? And this is an important connection that I want you to make so that you can understand verse 10. So in verse 6, it says this. Remember, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. Now this I say... He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So who gave that seed? That's you, and that's me. But your initial investment, your initial ability to do it, came from him. He's the source from which all material possessions come. So Paul, in verse 10, starts with this statement, now he who supplies seed to the sower. So it actually gives us the how this works. How is this going to work? If I give seed, where'd that seed come from? Well, he just affirms it's a very sweet way to go into this reaffirming that God is able to take care of those who give. And I think it's important that he does. He's going to do it three times here in a row. So that tells us how important it is. But this is really the sticking point, isn't it? It's always the place where we come to grips with where our faith is. Okay, so I, I have this greater or lesser amount that the Lord brings into me, and I want to be sacrificial and faithful and, and single-minded about it, and I want to do it uh, generously. But this is all I have, and if I give this amount, I'm not sure I'm going to be okay. And so Paul takes some time and says, okay, you, you know, he who, uh, who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Yeah, I get that, so I'm going to be on the sparing side and, and whatever and then he just inf affirms he who supplies seed to the sower and we know who that is and then this and bread for food and i think isaiah 55 10 is in view here you'll enjoy this i think it'll be a blessing to you verse 10 says this for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it market bear and sprout and then furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So the idea there is the Lord's in charge of that. He moves the things around. He moves the rain. He moves snow down from heaven, and they don't return without doing what he intended for it to do. 
So this big process in place, the logistics of it are huge, but the Lord's doing it as we saw in our example early at the, at the opening. And then he uses this common agrarian axiom that we just looked at right there. God moves the water around and it falls to the ground and it waters the earth and, and the seeds are there and they bear and they sprout and they furnish seed and they furnish bread. And he uses that same thing that doesn't have to be defended. And, and then he says this in verse 11. He says, and it's not really pertinent to our study today, but important to know nonetheless. So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I said it, which, which is why, just as a side note, we go verse by verse through the Bible because the more you spend time in the Word, and that's why we have some Scripture in between our songs, the more you spend time in the Word, the more you read the Word and you allow it to go out, it accomplishes what? What it's supposed to accomplish. So the more you do that, the better. I mean, a lot of guys say they preach the Word, but really what they do is they just talk about what they want to talk about and they use the Word to proof text that. That's not the same. The more the word is unleashed, the more it's able to do the watering and, and the more it's able to produce the harvest that's supposed to produce. So that's just kind of a side note. But what we can understand about the passage is this, that the steady, firm, absolutely reliable nature of the creator and provider who market regularly in the realm of his creation provides all that's necessary for the lives of men and women and never fails will fulfill his promise to you. That's the reason why Paul pulls it in, because in its context, it just shows God's faithfully moving water around and moving everything around so that everything is done like it's supposed to do, and man doesn't have any impact on that. It's going to continue. That's what we see seed time and harvest, sun, you know, sun and moon, seed time and harvest, fall, winter, spring, all of that. It's going to continue. Okay, so the Lord does that. He set it up all the processes, and it's moving forward, and that same God, see, that's why Paul pulls it in, will fulfill his promise to you. So he says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So the same God who makes the rain and snow fall from heaven and carries it all around according to his own design and according to his own wisdom and for his own purposes, Isaiah 55.10, the same God who says in Psalm 104.14, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted. And then later in the Psalms, the Lord says this, it's so wonderful, 104, 21. He says, the young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from whom? Oh, they do? I mean, I watch lots of uh, National Geographic. It seems like they were just kind of doing it on their own. Actually, the Bible says that they seek their food from the Lord. And if the Lord owns everything and controls everything and he's put it all to work as it should, then that makes sense, right? When the sun rises, they withdraw and they lie in their dens. Man goes forth to his work, to his labor until evening. Verse 24, O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. All the earth is full of your possessions. What's the earth full of? So you have a house full of your possessions? which resides in the earth, which is full of the Lord's possessions. So whose possessions are they? They actually belong to the Lord, don't they? And that's a really great thing to remember because we get kind of protective about our possessions sometimes. But they all belong to the Lord because it resides in the world that he owns. That's a great thing to read. I love that. It just makes, it's just so fulfilling to me to read that. And then he says, and don't forget, there's a sea, great and broad, in which swarms without number animals, both small and great, they belong to him too. The same God then who does all of that, who, who feeds the lions, the same God who puts men to work and they ma he makes the earth blossom and bloom and grow and, and, and produce what it's supposed to. The same God who says in Psalm 145, 14, my favorite, you know this, the Lord sustains all who fall, raises up all who are bowed down. The, the eyes of all look to you, Lord. You give them, Lord, their food in due time. Mark this, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living That, that God, the God who said, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, I'll make sure that you're taken care of. Do you think he has good enough cred for that? The same God who said all of that, mark this now, because we know this from our own passage, the same God is especially kind to his own children with a special kind of love 
and gracious generosity to those who will give in this way. Same God who takes care of all that is especially disposed to his own children. That makes sense, doesn't it? You maybe manage a lot of stuff. You may have a lot of stuff you're in charge of and you take care of it and it works and all of that, right? And you've got people who work for you maybe and you, you tell them what to do and you make sure that they have jobs to do and that they can make their money. And many of you employ people and, and they go home and they supply their needs to their family, right? But you are particularly having an affinity for your own children, don't you? That makes sense, doesn't it? We can, we can connect with that. That, that God, the Holy Spirit carries Paul along to say, he will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So principle 10, obviously, because we've said all of this, but we just want to kind of get it down. We should expect, it's, it's not a stretch for us to expect, that the same Heavenly Father, that's the source of everything, and takes care of everything. Now, we're just kind of summing up a whole bunch of stuff, aren't we? He's the source, and he makes sure it all runs. We should expect that the person who does that to take care of givers who are taking care of others. Beloved, do you know when you give generously and you make sure things happen and when you give generously and needs are met or whatever, who are you resembling? You're resembling the Lord. And we've seen that over and over, right? He's generous and compassionate and he gives even though it's not deserved. He does all kinds of great stuff. And when you give faithfully, who do you resemble? You resemble the Lord. So it shouldn't surprise us when he sees a faithful giver who is doing it over and over again and he's resupplied because the Lord says, I will, and then you're just making sure another good deed gets done. It shouldn't surprise us that when he sees someone who's taking care of needs and resembling him in that way, when he finds that channel he can use to take care of others, he will enrich that channel so they can continue through him to meet needs. So Paul's saying the same thing he said in verse 10. So, so, how important do you think it is that he's making sure we understand this from a whole bunch of different directions? See? This very firm purpose in the mind of God. And so, he says this. He says, um, multiply your seed for sowing and then mark it. Increase the harvest of your righteousness. And he's really hearkening back to Hosea 10, 12. And here it is. It says, sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, uh, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. And the prophet encourages a change in the direction of God's people. And if you read Hosea, which I would encourage you to, uh, you will find that the people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And Hosea is having to suffer a good bit, so he'll relate to what's going on with the people. But he says, uh, break up your fallow ground. So they're not doing any of this. They're not sowing with a view to righteousness, and they're not reaping according with kindness. So he says, listen, change direction here. Because righteous behavior, as it relates to our, our context, with respect to money, brings temporary reward, doesn't it? Of course, the Lord continues to resupply and eternal reward, because we saw that last time. And beloved, kindness, with respect to giving away what you have, brings a harvest back of kindness, doesn't it, from the Lord, because he is open-handed from him to you, and he has a special love from him to you. And that brings both temporal and eternal reward because we ended with that last time so it's not surprising to us and then in second corinthians 9 11 look there the holy spirit continues to confirm this very important principle he says in verse 11 look at it he says um, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality so if there's anything you thought perhaps wouldn't be touched by this that god isn't capable of or powerful enough or inclined enough to reach into the lives of faithful people and touch that whatever it is it's just included in the word in everything So how important is it, do you think, that we understand this principle from the Lord to us? Verse 8 says, God will give you an abundance for every good deed, every good work. Verse 10 says, he'll multiply the seed that can be sown again. And then verse 11, you'll be enriched again for all generosity. So if we give in this way, with a predetermined, single-minded, sacrificial, generous, cheerful heart, not prompted by compulsion and, and without complaining, it's just so clear. This is what God wants, mark it, from all those who claim to be his. This isn't just some certain circle of people. You've, you've attained some level of income, and now you're at the point where you can begin to do this. This is everybody. Everybody has some input, income, and then everybody has some proportion. Everybody. So this is, 
This is just so clear. This is what God wants from all who claim to be his. He's, he's, just, he's demonstrated his power to do all that he can do and does and all the processes that are under the sun he controls and makes sure that it all gets moved around where it's supposed to move around. And even things we don't think about are all taken care of because of his hand and because of the things he's put in place. He does all of those things, see? And so he does that so we can be secure knowing when we, when we buy into this, which we're supposed to, we're in the place where he wants us. And beloved people, as I say this often, pause sometimes when we have such a clear principle from the Lord. People are always saying, I, wonder what, I really want to know what God's will is for my life. Well, again, this is pretty clear. He obviously wants you to use your money in this way. He obviously wants you to manage your finances and have the right attitude towards him in this way. It's so clear. And not only does he want you to do it, he said, I'll reward you and bless you when you do. And we've seen this illustrated over and over throughout the word. And I'll just drop in on a few of them because the word explains the word the word of God and, and makes it so rich. Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. That's the command. What's the blessing? So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats overflow with new wine. It's always, there's always a command and there's always followed up by, and if you do this, I'll take care of you. Uh, how about Proverbs 10, 22? It's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Oh, I thought it was me. I thought it was me that made rich. I thought it was me, my, my ability, my thought, my, my planning, my, my, all of that. No, it's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. If whatever you have, we're rich. And, and I said this in the first service. Whatever, whatever you have, whatever we have, in comparison, if we just, and I don't like to do this because we are where we are and, and they are where they are, but in comparison to the rest of the world, whatever we have, we're, we're rich in comparison to most of the rest of the world. Would, you would agree. So it, in that subjective way to look at it, everybody's rich. But Whatever it is, it's the Lord giving you that, what you have, see, and he adds no sorrow to it. It's not bad to have more than you need. Many people have more than they need. Even people in other countries, we would think, you know, they have hardly anything. Many of them would look at their own income and say, we have way more than we need, see. And he has no sorrow to it. There's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to feel bad about it. He's the one who did it. And if everything belongs to him, then he's the only one who can do it. How about Isaiah 48, 17? Thus saith the Lord your Redeemer the Holy One of Israel, I'm the Lord your God who teaches you to profit. Oh, I thought that was me learning how to profit. I thought I figured this out. No, actually, if it all belongs to him and he's going to give it to you, then he's apparently shown you how that's supposed to happen. Who leads you in the way you should go. He's the one that actually turns your head in the correct way. He's the one that gives your mind and thoughts the understanding that they need. I'm the one who did this Make sure you give me the accolades I deserve. Verse 18, if only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Instead of it being a little puddle temporarily where you were just obeying temporarily and I was able to do this for you, it would have become a consistent, obedient lifestyle which turns into a river similar to or similar to the waves of the sea which continue. See, Just make that your pattern to obey. How about 1 Timothy 6, 17? Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So there's going to be some with a lot. That's okay. You wouldn't have it if the Lord didn't give it to you. He owns the world and everything in it. Just make sure when you have it that you're not stuck up about it and you're not fixing your hope on it like somehow with the accumulation of a lot of stuff you've insulated yourself from calamity which we've talked about before because you haven't because all of it is his and, and if he sees you putting your, your hope in that and that's your insulation from calamity then you should expect if you're a believer for him to remove that cushion from you see so don't put your, don't put your hope on it that's not your hope God's your hope see and even if you didn't have that cushion he'd still be your hope wouldn't he and your future would still be just as secure as it is now with whatever it is that you're counting on to retire on. Then there's nothing wrong with that. You don't think I'm picking on not. He richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And so that's who we put our hope on. And so if you have a lot, what? Well, instruct him to do good. Be good with it. Do good things with it. Be rich in good works, not just rich in what you have. Be rich in good works and be generous and be ready to share We've seen that over and over, beloved. You, you, this is redundant in the Word of God. And when you do that, what are you really doing? Well, you're storing up for yourself the treasure of a good foundation for the future 
so that they may take hold of that which is life. You may think life is great, okay, but the life that you think is great now is nothing in comparison to the one the Lord has prepared for you when you get those things in line, see? And again, same thing, current blessing, you have more than you need, using it correctly, future blessing, depending on how you handle the one that you currently have. Same idea, 2 Corinthians 9.11. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. And then look at the next part, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So you're going to be enriched in everything for all liberality. So needs are being met. Giving is done. Needs are being met. Giving is done. Needs are being met. So a continuing cycle, right? Not just a one-time deal. You're, you're, you're buying in for the long haul. It's not going to be a puddle of blessing. It's going to be a river of blessing. It's not going to be just one little downpour of blessing. It's like the waves of the sea, okay? Continue a lifestyle like that. You've aligned yourself and what, how you're handling your finances. So the honor of the Lord, see. Little amount, large amount. It's all in proportion. You'd be enriched in everything for all liberality over and over again. And ultimately, what does that lead to? Market, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So principle number 11 on the pathway to blessing, when you follow through with predetermined, single-minded giving, it creates an environment where God is glorified because of you. And like the previous principle, we're going to see this one repeated several times. You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So who's the us? Let's just break it down a little bit. Uh, well, in this particular passage, it's Titus. It's an unnamed elder that we didn't know, but the church knew. We, we didn't have to know because the church would readily identify who it is because of his, his testimony and his lifestyle. And the other church leader, perhaps a deacon who was well-known, we looked at all this, and then some people from Macedonia Paul said he was going to bring him along to make sure uh, the Corinthians knew that this group they had inspired to give was also going to be there to kind of monitor what was going on, and then Paul. But here's the idea expressed in us. When that offering is delivered to those who need it, when it begins to do the ministry it was intended to do, when uh, the people it's focused on begin to receive the benefit of it, they are going to thank God and they're going to give glory to God. That's just obvious, right? And, beloved, of all the benefits of the pathway of blessing, that's the most wonderful one, isn't it? I mean, it's great that God resupplies what we need. It's great that we can rely on him, that when we're in this pattern of managing what we have in the way that's going to be pleasing to him, that we just know he's going to resupply just so we can keep doing good deeds. And all needs are being met, too, but all the whole time, we're very, very content knowing that it's all taken care of. We're good. The Lord's, Lord's in charge. Our, our hope's not in the things that we have or don't have, right? But of all the benefits of the pathway of blessing, and there are a lot of benefits, and they are repeated several times so that we would know God has the power and the inclination to do it. Of all of that, this is the most wonderful one of all, isn't it? What's it mean? It just means when you do it, thanksgiving goes to God and praise goes to God and bringing attention to God's attributes and bringing God into clear focus and God getting glory. See, people say, I want, what I want to do, I want to do for God's glory. And I say this often to you, well, that's a great aspiration. The problem is it doesn't always end up that way. It only is going to end up for God's glory when God's given, thanked, given thanks, when praise is towards God. Mark it, when the, when the attention on God's attributes is clear, so what you're doing makes God look great, his attributes in you, that's bringing God glory, see? And bringing God into clear focus, that's glory to God. And Paul says when you give in this way, this, this offering that we're going to deliver, you did, but we're going to deliver, he says, it's going to produce thanksgiving to God. And in fact, if you think about how remarkable that is, because the absence of thanksgiving to God and glory to God, those are the symptoms of a thankless, sinful human race that gives itself to every other vice. Is, aren't, aren't they? Not being thankful, not glorifying God, that's the symptoms of, of a vice-filled, sinful human race. And that's one of the reasons for the wrath of God. So, so obviously, we want to be where we're not there, right? I mean, you remember we studied this in Romans 1.21. For even though they knew God, they did not what, honor him as God, nor give him thanks, right? They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. That, that's, that's the world, see? And, and I might add, just on a, another note, 
really starting in verse 18 all the way through verse 32. That's the platform of the new administration. You want to know what they stand for? Start in verse 18 of Romans 1 and go to verse 32. That's their platform. And, and uh, as, as heartbreaking as that is, uh, we're going to talk about that in a future time, what our response should be if that ends up being the case. But this thankless, honorless, vice-filled, sinful generation, this, this is what they're full of. So it's so wonderful that we, when we do what we do, we actually focus on the other part, the part we're supposed to focus on. Because when God's not thanked, he's not glorified for all the blessings he's poured out on this world, he's grieved and he's insulted and he's going to punish those who are thankless and don't give him glory. And you can mark it, beloved, the more they've been blessed with worldly things and the more that God moving around the water watered their farm and they didn't give God any glory for it nor did they thank him and the more that they uh, because of what they're able to do that God gave them they're able to amass a lot of stuff to market that's going to be parts of judgment for them you knew I was there and I provided all this to you that wasn't as a result of what you did and yet you gave no thanks and no glory this is the way to this is the way to judgment see so I know it doesn't surprise us that the primary the primary issue of all of our work and our ministry, and our life, all of it is for God to get glory. Wouldn't you agree? That's really where we want to be. So work, then, and ministry, and do life so that God can get thanks, and God can receive glory. And in this verse, then, the more people who are touched by our giving, the more glory is going to go to the Lord. That's pretty cool. And Paul expounds on this idea. Look at verse 12. He, he doesn't stop with this. He, again, wants to make sure it's clear. I'm going to break this down a little bit because it's just so full and rich and, and such a blessing to read. Look at verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Now, let's start with the first part. For the ministry, of course, that is the noun diakonia, which we have looked at many times. That is where we get our title for the office of deacon. It's one who serves. It's a table, table waiter. So the idea, it's just very basic service. When you give, uh, the, this ministry that you're doing, this service that you're doing, is just is the most basic of ministries that the Lord, uh, the Lord expounds. He, he loves that. And then it says, for the ministry of this service, and that is liturgias, that's where we get our word liturgy, and that's an important uh, point here. So the idea there is when you are ministering this way, you, you are actually worshiping. That's, that's the idea. It's part of the liturgy. It's part of the actual worship from the heart of men. When you give in this way, you worship the Lord. It's part of our worship. So literally, the service of ministering to the needs of the church by giving in this way is actually you worshiping God in the act of giving. And it's not only that. It says it's not only that. It's that not just doing what it intended to do, which is fully supplying uh, a compound verb, prosan apaleruo, prosis unto, and ana is in the middle of, and then pleruo is the word we've seen before. It's, it's fitting out of a ship for a voyage. That's what it was used for. It's, it's uh, making sure the ship has everything it needs as it sails so that it doesn't have any lack. So it says, not only are you worshiping the Lord in this ministry, but you are fully supplying all the needs. Husto orimata. That's whatever's lacking literally it's literally from the backside the idea is that you know when you're when you're loading something particularly it's the ship and that people are walking around the ship on the dock and they're just making sure there's no room anywhere that they need to put more things and they're not missing anything do we have rope yes do we have you know extra anchors do we have timbers do we have all the things you're going through extra food supplies all the things we need it's walking around and making sure it's there so the idea there is you're ministering in a very basic way and it's worship to the Lord, and in doing that and giving, you're actually fully supplying the ship for its voyage and making sure nothing's lacking. Fully supplying the needs. Whatever's lacking, whatever less to be taken care of, nothing's overlooked. There you go. Nothing's overlooked. That's the best way to think about it. And so the idea here is just obvious. Giving in this way will fully supply the ministry to the Jerusalem church because that's the context. If everybody does what they're supposed to do, a year's worth of offerings and multiple churches doing it, the, the Corinthian church saying, we're in this in a big way, we're going to do this, you know, then it's, there's going to leave, it's going to leave no shortfalls. It was really a large offering. And, and because it's used then as, a, as an example, as a model for the church, we know that God wants the job done to the fullest. 
So it's not a hard stretch, we, and that requires the whole church to get on board, small income, small amount, large income, large amount. It's all proportional, see? And this isn't giving to impoverish one and to enrich someone else. Remember, because he who didn't have too much and he who had a lot didn't have too much and he had a little, had no luck. Remember, it's just giving with a single-minded purpose, not like, well, they're going to be enriched and I'm going to be impoverished. It's not that, because that's, that's giving grudgingly or out of compulsion. God doesn't like that giver. Keep the money, use it for something else, you'll have the same blessing. But the fact of the matter is, here it says, listen, just do a job to the fullest, make sure nothing's lacking, you know, small amount, large amount, whatever it is, in proportion, single-minded, you know, predetermined, think it through, and then do it. And God resupplies both. Those who have little, those who have a lot, he resupplies both. So if this is our model then, then this is God's will for market, again, all of his people. Uh, to give in such a way to get the job done with the right heart attitude, and we know the blessing of resupply. But there's even more blessing, not just this one. Look at this next one. But is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. There's this tale of a, of a man who found a barn where Satan kept his seeds ready to be sown in the human heart. He found the seeds of discouragement were more numerous than the others, and he learned that those seeds could be made to grow almost anywhere. But when Satan was questioned, he reluctantly admitted there was one place in which he could never get them to thrive. And where's that? asked the man. Well, Satan replied sadly, in the heart of a thankful person. I think we can relate to that, can't we? We're thankful to the Lord for all that he's supplied to us. The more thankful we are, the less discouraged we are, right? Less we, the less we look on our own problems, the less we start to complain. When we're thankful people, that kind of excludes this discouragement and, and uh, disheartening type of, of uh, trajectory. And when we're giving and people's needs are being met, and they're thankful for that too, and so discouragement is dispelled, isn't it? It says overflowing through many thanksgivings, so it's not just a little bit of thanksgiving, it's the parasuo type of thanksgiving. It's the superabounding thanksgiving, that's pretty cool. We've seen the word numerous times, it's the word used in Romans 5.17 where death abounded through Adam's sin, remember? But through Christ, life superabounded. What's the idea there? Well, the results of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection went beyond what any man could have imagined as the outcome. That's the idea. We understand that, don't we? Adam's sin affected the whole human race, but Christ's death and resurrection on the cross affected so many other things besides just death. And so it's a similar idea here in 2 Corinthians 9.12. Paul just wanted the Corinthian church to know that when they give in this way, they don't just meet the need, which is wonderful in itself, and God resupplies, which is wonderful in itself and great security to us, but to create in their obedience an opportunity for many to glorify God, which is wonderful, and to give thanks to God, which is what we want, and that's the trademark of believers, and to express that thanksgiving with a grateful heart. When we give in this way, we bring honor and glory to God. So, and the many, beloved, if you just think about it, the many, if we think about the context here in Corinth, the many who are the beneficiaries of the gift will be thanking God. And when we give in the church, the many who are the beneficiaries of that gift will be thanking God. And that fruit belongs to you. You get that. See, When you participate in this way, that fruit belongs to you. And the Lord keeps track of all of that. See, And, and the many who didn't need it, but they watched their loved one be blessed. See, their fa family may be connected to them who gets blessed. Uh, or they see their loved one come to Christ or grow in their faith. They're going to give thanks to God, and that fruit belongs to you too. It's that old adage... Anyone can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. That's, that's super abounding. And because of the generosity of the Corinthian church, there would be an overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. And, and when the modern church gives in this way, there is the same deal, an overflowing through, overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. It still works exactly the same way. We bring him glory, we bring him honor, and we return thanks to him and we bless him. Those are the most important ones, aren't they? I mean, the other ones are really great, and they, they provide for our security, but really the, the fabric of our life is to bring him glory, and this is one of the ways you can do that. And then this last part, and we're out of time, so we're going we're gonna to close. 
2 Corinthians 9, 13. Look here. We'll, we'll pick up with this next time, Lord willing. Verse 13. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. Now mark this. And this will be tough to hear, but also, also encouraging. Verse 13 says, because of the dokime, the proof given to this ministry. We've seen this before. That is something that's been tested and found to be authentic. Trials give us that, don't they? We've seen that before. But this particularly is a word used to refer, as we've seen, ancient money being the right weight. In ancient times, money was all different shapes and sizes. And so they would let, set it on a scale to make sure it weighed what it was supposed to weigh in order to purchase whatever you wanted to purchase. And so this idea that it's being weighed out and it's tried and proven, it also is used to refer to tried character, which has to do with uh, difficult times. It's an interesting statement because of the proof given by this ministry market for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. So what are they talking about? They're talking about the ministry of the offerings. They're talking about the ministry of meeting need. So the ministry, there's proof given when you participate. That's the idea. And we're going to look at this a little closer next time, but here it is. Basically, basically, it proved they were born again. That's the idea. It proved by their obedience to Christ that a transformation had really occurred in this particular case by how they gave. Now, here's a question for you. How do you know that someone's born again? Is it by what they say or by what they do? Because the people who just say and don't do, those are the people Jesus labeled as deceived. That was one of the major points of, of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, wasn't it? Those who say, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we, right? We say this, but we didn't do it. You did works of unrighteousness. That's what he said, lawlessness. The people who say but don't do are people who build their houses on the sand. That was the whole point of that. The people who say and don't do are the people who build with wood, hay, and stubble. The people who do are the people who examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. And, and that will look like obedience. And the people who do are the ones who build their houses on the rock. And the people who do and don't just say are the people who build with gold, silver, and costly stone. Now listen, this is that way with everything, isn't it? Obedient people, obedient to the word of God, make the faith look real, don't they? We all can think of people like this. And I told first service, you know, there's a guy, there's been a lot of people who, who I have looked up to over the years. Um, and, and for different reasons. But they all had one thing in common. They made the faith look real. And when I saw that, I thought, I want to be like that because it's so apparent that Christ is at home in their heart. There's this one guy, though, when I was very young uh, and growing up in my church, he was a businessman in town. He's with the Lord now. And I thought the world of this guy. And as I watched his life closely and how he was involved in the church and how he gave and he conducted himself in his business, I just thought, I mean, I, didn't, I knew that he was, he was flawed, of, of course. I didn't know where, but I, he wasn't perfect. I wasn't idolizing him, but I did. When I watched how he conducted himself and what he did with his money, I thought, you know, Christ is really apparent in this person's life by how he does this, obviously. And I just thought, that's a really great thing to do. That's, that's a way to be. And we know people like this, don't we? People who are encouragers, people who are in the word, people who, you know, who witness. And you watch them and just think, they're obedient to what God says. And that makes Christianity authentic, doesn't it? And people who don't do it, people who regularly just live like they want to live, they don't conform themselves to what the word of God says. And, and if you saw them in their daily business, it wouldn't be clear that Christ was in their heart. See, that makes it unclear whether or not they're truly born again. And so it's not a hard principle, and it's not if you give in this way, you're born again. It's not that at all. You only come by grace through faith in Christ's work on the cross. But the fact of the matter is, in this particular instance, this is the example Paul's making. When you give this way, you give proof, what? That you have a confession of the gospel of Christ. And I like that. It's hard to hear, but it's, it's real nonetheless, isn't it? James 1.22 through 24 says it in a different way. It says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers, mark it, who delude themselves. So you hear what the word of God says, and if we want to apply it here, in the way that you manage your finances and the way you're supposed to give, and you don't do it, what are you doing? What's it say? You're deluding yourself. 
right? You, you saw what it says in the word of God. You don't do it. You're just deluding yourself. For Then it goes on and says, for if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, here's what that person's like. They're like a person who goes and looks at his face in the mirror, and once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. That's ridiculous, isn't it? But that's precisely the illustration that James wants to use to point out the inconsistency between somebody who calls himself a believer and then doesn't do anything that the Word of God says to do. You're deluded, which means you're probably not a believer at all. And so it's very hard to hear, but I think also encouraging because when you find yourself in that pattern in the waves and in the river, not in the puddle, right, you realize that this is part of that testimony, faithfully doing what the Word of God says. And it's Paul saying in our passage, the confessing of your faith is proven in your obedience to these instructions. In this case, is the way you handle what the Lord has loaned to you. And beloved, here's a great opportunity to make it obvious, and people will glorify God because they see that obedience. And that's really what we want all the time, isn't it? Certainly what we want our children to see, that's what we want the world to see, and so it's a great thing to hold up as the standard. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. As we're out of time, Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be together, and we thank you for the joy it is to have fellowship, for the time we spent in singing and uh, worshiping you in that way, the time we spent in giving and sacrificially uh, are recognizing you've given us everything and we don't own any of it and you supply and all the things we've seen. Very difficult, Father, though, that uh, to come to grips with that, perhaps the sticking point for some when we think about what we have and how you've supplied and, and maybe how we've managed it up to this point. So we look at the bills and we look at the, the obligations and the overhead and we think there's no way I can do this. But Lord, I pray that you'll help us to see that obedience to you is what everybody's supposed to do who calls on your name. And so we find a way to be obedient and you always, always find a way to pay back, always. Because you've made everything and you move it all around and you, all the processes of the world are all in your hand and they all continue. And, and everything that is on the face of the earth gets what they need from you. Uh, you can be trusted with us too. And so Lord, I pray that you'll bring us to whatever position we need to be to begin to do it better than we've done it. And that's always the case. We wanna, we're seeking what's pleasing to you. We know this is pleasing to you, so we desire to do it. And help it to be part of our testimony, as with all of our life in obedience. What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And then putting it to work. And you power us by the Holy Spirit. We're grateful for that. We know it's not in our own power that we do that, or in the power of the flesh, but we relinquishing ourselves to you and saturating ourselves with your word and letting the word dwell in us richly with all wisdom. We find uh, these things begin to take shape in a way that is blooming in glory to you. So, Father, we just give you thanks for that. And as we go out from here, as we always pray, Lord, help us to be obedient to your great command, which is to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which works its way out, of course, in obedience, and our neighbor as ourself. Lord, I pray that we'll be those kinds of believers, and then as we move from here, Father, to you, we about the Great Commission, bringing the gospel to those who don't know, giving the good news to those who haven't heard faithfully over and over. He who wins souls is wise, you tell us. Help us to be wise believers. In these last days, as we wait on your son's return, it's for his glory and honor that we pray all of this and for his will to be done. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.